This special edition of Telehell is sponsored by the Steamed Ham Society. Ladies and gentle demons, have you ever wanted to know what the latest in fast food and snack food tasted like at this time of year, at this time of day, in this part of the country, localized entirely within someone's social media page? Yes, that's it. If you have, consider joining the Steamed Ham Society. Founded by former Simpsons writer and co-executive producer Bill Oakley, the Steamed Ham Society does all those things, as Oakley himself gives his reviews on what snacks people should be eating and what they shouldn't be. Go to SteamedHamSociety.com today to find out how you can join. This program is also sponsored by our patrons at Patreon.com slash Podcast, including Mr. Cheeseball, Funny Music Man, Rick Kalaki Jr., Chris Mashad, Meredith Morrissey, Justin Moses, Rabbi, Spare Parts, and Neil Weinstein. Thank you. Eight hundred forty-five thousand seven hundred thirty-three ringy dingies. 845,734 ringy dingies. Why did I try to call this guy in the middle of a writer's strike? He's probably picketing right now. Oh, uh, uh, hi. Uh, in case you missed it last time, today's subject is going to involve... Something that we take far too much for granted on this show. So much so that we've practically added at least one sound clip to almost every episode we've done since we've started. Almost. And why not? In spite of how long the show has been on the air, not a day goes by when I use at least one memorable quote from the show as part of everyday conversation. Hi, caramba! Idly hope! Excellent. If anyone wants me, I'll be in my room. What kind of catchphrase is that? And thus, the reason why we're here today. We're not going to go over the entire history of the show, because countless publications and documentaries have already done a better job of that than I could ever do. Instead, we're going to be talking about one specific episode of this show. But not just any episode. For this is the one episode in the nearly 35 years of the show's existence that people want to zero in on for one particular purpose. It is this episode of The Simpsons that both casual, fair-weather, and die-hard fans of the show alike have considered to be a major turning point of the series, and for all the wrong reasons. One where... To paraphrase Bart Simpson telling Lisa about her date with Ralph Wiggum, you can pinpoint the second where the hearts of many fans rips in half. But there's a question that needs to be answered here. Well, several actually, but the big one is, was this one moment in TV history truly the beginning of the end of a long-running show's creative streak, or were people overreacting to a mere anomaly? And that, folks, is the reason why you're hearing the dial tone in the background. For the past few weeks, we've been trying to get in contact with one person who was there at the ground floor. Someone who was not only co-responsible for helping to put this episode on the air, but also someone who is willing to defend the making of it. 
I just hope he realizes just how much this long-distance bill is going to run me. Waiting two weeks for someone to pick up the phone is a little much. Hello? Hello, is this Bill Oakley? If this is Capital One, I told you, I've sent in the payment already. No, we're not Capital One, but we are just as devious. What can I do for you? Okay, let me give you the short version. I'm a junior demon in the underworld of hell, and I was sent down here because I stole cable back when I was alive. Now, my punishment is to review some of the worst and or dumbest TV shows and TV moments of all time for a podcast that we produce down here. And I'm going to need your assistance for one of our subjects. Okay, before I hang up, where do I come in to the aspect of worst TV shows of all time? Well, I don't want to offend you off the bat, but... But part of the reason why I'm calling is because we already covered a show that you co-created for a TV network that doesn't exist. Oh, I've done two, at least two things for networks that no longer exist, but I didn't consider them to be worst shows of all time. What are they? To be clear, I am a fan of Mission Hill. Then I know which one it is. I didn't, I did not hear your your take on the mullets. Presumably, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, truth be told, I wanted to reach out to you to hedge my bets just in case you heard that episode and you didn't like what you heard, and I want you to stop from launching a lawsuit of some kind. Would you like to talk about The Simpsons? Yeah, where does that come into being among the worst TV shows of all time? Oh, you'll see. Roll the credits! And now, it's where TV meets torture. This is Hell. Okay, just to shatter any illusions, this is not going to be a regular episode of the show. Yes, we're still going to review and judge the subject in our nine circles like we normally do, but considering how rare it is when we have company of this caliber here in the underworld, forgive me if we do things a little differently this time. With all of that in mind, I want you to please state your name and what you do for the record, sir. My name is Bill Oakley. I'm a comedy writer and best known for being a showrunner or co-showrunner of The Simpsons back in the day with my partner, Josh Weinstein. We were on the show for seven years. We wrote 12 episodes and we ran seasons seven and eight. And then we also created another show called Mission Hill. We both worked on Futurama. We've done lots of other things since. Uh, and since then, mainly, I have been writing all sorts of other things, including an audio book, a very successful book called Space 1969, and fashioning myself into a food celebrity. And I'm about halfway there, I'm proud to say. And in a somewhat brief amount of time that I'm sure will be expanded upon as we do this interview as a bonus feature later this summer, how did you and your longtime writing partner, Josh Weinstein, end up on The Simpsons? The coin of the Roman sitcom writing, at least back then, was a spec script, which is a script you write a free episode. For no money, you write an episode of a show you like to show that you can write comedy in a, in a professional way and, and, and mimic the tone of a prof- show that someone else has, right? Right. So we had written a, scr- a script for a show called Coach. We wrote this Coach script. To be honest, it was just as good as the average episode of Coach, but nobody gave a shit because they didn't think Coach was very good. <laughs> and it finally took, you know, people were trying to get it. We were going around town with this, and, like, finally it took a guy um, a guy to tell us, like, listen, we got a guy who, through connection, to read it. The guy said, it's clear that you guys don't really like this show very much. 
you need to write a new script with a show that you like. And we're like, oh, that is good advice. But man, we're out of money. And I already applied. Both of us had decided to give up at that point approximately. And I was like, OK, let's write another script. Let's just do this. Let's do what that guy said and write one more script and see what happens. And so we did. And so this time we were like, we're going to write the, a script for the show that we truly love. And it was a show that had only been on for four episodes called The Seinfeld Chronicles. <laughs> And it was also really unpopular, but it had, you know, it had gotten a buzz amongst people in the writing community. And we thought it was so funny. And we wrote this episode and we, we got it to this and this got us a new agent immediately. And the agent loved it. And it immediately opened all these doors. It was it was shocking. The transition, like within like we had been unemployed, like within two weeks, we were having a meeting at Cheers, having a meeting at Murphy Brown and all these other shows because people were like, these guys are young, cheap guys who can write a really good script are, are something that you want to get on your show, especially if they're a team because you can make them split a salary. So we, uh, in the midst of all those meetings, the guys at The Simpsons got, got a copy of it. And one of Mike Reese and Al Jean, only one of them had even heard of Seinfeld at that point, I was told, but they thought it was good. And they decided, decided let's offer these guys a, a script, a Simpsons script. And they did, and they called us in, and we they had a story made up already called Marge Gets a Job, which Conan had made up, right. where Marge works at the power plant and Mr. Burns falls in love with her, and they're like, we want you to write this. And so we, we wrote it, and we did a pretty okay job. Like, it, it was, I mean, re in retrospect, having run the show, you know, it's very hard for people who aren't working on this show to write a very good Simpsons script, um, because it's just, it, take, it takes a lot of practice, a lot of skill, a lot of knowledge of the way, you know, how long the scenes are and stuff. Uh, was there any pressure or intimidation from anybody that was already working? Working there, like, did you feel like you had to prove yourself or was it really more of a camaraderie kind of thing over there? Everyone was pretty nice. There was no, it was not a, a case, unlike some writing rooms, there was no like raging asshole type uh, person, uh, either the boss or co-workers. Everyone was pretty nice and it was pretty collegial. I would say it was only a high pressure environment in that you knew that these were the best. I mean, even at the time we were, it was the most incredible thing that ever happened that we got hired there because that was the right, like as much as Seinfeld was great, you knew that was just Larry David pretty much making it up with Jerry Seinfeld. Right. The, the Simpsons was known as like the best, it was the best writing room since, you know, you got your early SNL and you got Sid Caesar Hour from the 50s with Mel Brooks and Woody Allen and... <laughs> Yeah. And all those guys, this was the writing room. This was the third such writing room in history. And like being asked to join it was flabbergasting. And I, we were very nervous. Definitely. We didn't even know what the job was going to entail. Like we thought we had no idea what it was going to be like from day to day. We'd never had any experience. And so we got there and it's really just like most of the job is sitting in the room all day long, every day, coming up with new jokes, you know, for the, for the, for the rewrites of the script. And you got, you know, at that time you had guys like George Meyer and you had John Swartzwelder and you had John Vitti and people and, and Mike and Alan and so forth and Conan in the room making up the jokes and it was like it was intimidating as hell but after a few weeks of sitting there kind of absorbing stuff we finally got to the point where we would start getting jokes in that we would pitch um, and I mean I think we listened for a long time and then once in a while we started getting small short jokes in and it was very satisfying I remember remembering I wrote down every single one that we got in um, and and you know and then over time uh, we got another script assignment which was that one where Marge goes to jail and that was the and I think that was when we knew that we had we had effectively joined the ranks of the staff because John Vitti told us it was the best first draft of the year and we were like holy shit that's John Vitti saying that oh my god and so we were like um, you know I think at that point we we were confident that we had at least proven ourselves worthy of remaining on the show 
well, uh, clearly, you know, especially when you're joining it like the zenith of the show, like 92, 93 or so. And that's when they really start putting in like the most densely layered, the most high quality, the best possible stuff that there is. So from that point onward, I mean, clearly you and Josh making it to executive producer and showrunner, it, it had to have been an easy walk in the park home run. We benefited from a few other things um, because, you know, it was this is the thing that in season four, we were we were brand new in season seven, which isn't that long later, we were running the show. And that was, and we were running the show before we were 30, which was exciting. And it, it, mainly a lot, a lot of that had to do with the fact that everybody else left. You know, like every single original writer left at the end of season four, except for Conan and us. And then Dan McGrath had only been hired a few months earlier. And that was a remarkable time. Uh, that was my favorite time of the show, ever working on the show when it was just the four of us because we all just went to like Malibu and ate, you know, shrimp tacos while making up the stories for season five. Um, and then uh, David Merkin arrived to take over the show and, and hired a whole new staff. Um, and then over it, and it became clear. I mean, we were the most senior. And then Conan, the real biggest obstacle to us running the show quickly was the fact that Conan was better than us and, and more senior than us. But he suddenly became a huge talk. He suddenly got to be a talk show host, much to everyone's shock, um, about six months season, into season five. So, um he left and then we were the most senior guys on the show and it wasn't I don't think we'd even been there a year and I think also when they when David Merkin left they didn't there was no other choice which brings us to the reason why we're here today there was an episode of the show that you and Mr. Weinstein were showrunners on that to say the least has wound up with a bit of notoriety over the years and that would be the second episode of the show's ninth season simply titled The Principal and the pauper. Someone in Springfield is hiding their secret identity. I don't have to listen to these wild allegations. The Simpsons, Sunday at 8, 7 central on Fox. Now, before we get into the overview of the episode, I think it's safe to ask just how did this episode's production come about? We, when Ken Keeler came in, Ken, Ken Keeler came in with this story. We were looking for stories. We were always looking for stories in, in late season eight of, that were new, that were not the types of stories we had done before. Ken came in with an article from USA Today um, about, I think it was USA Today, about a, sol- a Vietnam, a soldier, a Ch- I believe he was a soldier from China, but he, I don't know, or he had been in a, or maybe it was a Vietnam thing, where this exact thing had happened. But what I, what I mean by this exact thing is someone had returned from war after many years and assumed an identity that was not his. And we're like, hey, that's kind of interesting, because also around this time, a movie called Summersby had come out. She knew his face. Go say hello to your daddy, son. His touch. His voice. You are not my husband. Whoever you think I am, do you love me? You're making me crazy! And Summersby starred Richard Gere and it was a remake of a movie called The Return of Martin Gere, which was a very well-regarded movie from 1982. Yes. Okay, The Return of Martin Gere is based on a, a story, an actual thing that happened in like 1560 in France, where a guy came back from war and assumed someone else's life. And it was kind of clear maybe that the wife knew it wasn't really him, but was willing to go along with it. And as were the other people in the village. And eventually there was a trial and so forth. And it was a great story. And around that 
that time, in, in, in 82, both a book came out, a historical book about this event came out, and the very, very successful movie, Return of Martin Gare, which was remade in the American Civil War as Summer's Beast. So we're like, this is a well-known story. This right. is a well-known story of someone who comes, and it's a, it's a story that, that has a lot of resonance to people. And furthermore, it fits perfectly with what we already know about Principal Skinner. It's already been established that Principal Skinner served in Vietnam, but it's also never been, what led him to be in Vietnam has never been said. And as soon as Ken came in with that article, and we, like, our main, our brains were spinning, just much like I'm saying right now. I said, like, oh, maybe we can do a reference to this. We do a reference to that. It's it's Agnes Skinner seems exactly like the kind of mother who would be willing to pretend it was her son, even if it wasn't. And people, but the joke is, in Springfield, everybody doesn't really, they, they still like the old, they still like the phony one better. Right. And and it all started to come together, and we were like, oh, we could do Sergeant Skinner, or he'd be boring. And none of that was like, oh, maybe we could get Martin Sheen, Martin Sheen from Apocalypse Now, to do this role. And and it all came together quickly, and um, like the story, the architecture of the story is is very simply the return of Martin Gere, but with the twist that Springfield doesn't care about the war hero and prefers to live in this fantasy life where Armin Tamsarian is pretending to be Principal Skinner. So we were like, that's an extremely solid story. It's much better than many of the other stories in late season eight. Now this episode, all this episode aired in season nine, it's part of season eight because the production order is 22 or 24 episodes, but they overlap. So usually the first two episodes of the next season are leftovers from the previous season. With that much of a brief introduction in mind, Bill Oakley and I are about to sit through this moment of TV infamy. For myself, personally, it's the first time I've seen this episode since I had to sell my Simpsons DVD collection for college textbook money back when I was alive. For Bill, a much longer period of time ago, I'm sure. We'll find out if not only does the episode hold up, but whether or not the fans of the show may have overreacted just a little bit from the episode's initial reception... After the break. Open sesame. <laughs> hey, Joe, we're down to the last Butterfinger. Ah! The last, last Butterfinger! Simpson going deep. Get a crispity, crunchity, peanut buttery burst in every bite of Butterfinger. Nobody better lay a finger on my Butterfinger. A reminder, this special edition of Telehell is sponsored by the Steamed Ham Society. Good Lord, what is happening in there? Former Simpsons head writer and showrunner Bill Oakley, author of the much-memed and much-parodied Steamed Ham sketch... Oh, no, I said steamed hams. That's what I call hamburgers. You call hamburgers steamed hams? Yes. ...has started the Steamed Ham Society and Food Discovery Club to celebrate fast food, snack food, and hard-to-find edible delights. With special treats for fans of The Simpsons as well. Yes, and you call them steamed hams despite the fact they are obvious to grill. Those who join will have exclusive access to special videos, behind-the-scenes content and reviews, and a worldwide community of like-minded eaters. Perks of the membership include Steamed Ham Society merchandise not available anywhere else, a private Discord server, and, at certain levels, custom-made content for you from Bill himself, and private hand-picked shipments of his favorite new snacks. Now, if that doesn't already get your mouth watering, then visiting steamhamsociety.com will. You are an odd fellow, but I must say, you steam a good ham. Go there now to take part in a virtual version of... An unforgettable luncheon. And now, here's what we're going to do this week for our own patrons. (laughs) 
This week on Telehealth's premium content of the damned. Watch, no matter what size fastener, nut, bolt, wing nut, square nut, eye bolt, hook, most anything, Gator Grip holds on tight to finish the job quickly and easily. Now hang a plant, work under the hood, fix a motorcycle, even set up a Christmas tree stand. Gator Grip replaces a complete toolbox and fits in your pocket, motorcycle, on your belt, or bike. The secret are these retractable steel rods that form to fit most any size or shape. Then locked in place, just turn and tighten. The only way to listen to Telehealth's premium content of the damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. Now at new low prices. And now, back to this week's torture. September 28th, 1997. Longtime news anchor David Brinkley retires after 54 years in broadcasting. The 1997 remake of Elton John's Candle in the Wind continues to raise money for various charities the late Princess Diana endorsed. And at 8 p.m., 7 p.m. Central, The Simpsons begins yet another episode of television in an unsumingly inconspicuous manner, complete with a couch gag of the family in full astronaut garb, bracing for liftoff from their couch. So far, so good, and no sign of trouble ahead. Act 1 begins with Principal Skinner doing what he does best, overseeing the school in the most mundane of ways. Oh, yeah. I have it going on. And while Skinner does what he does, Superintendent Chalmers sneaks around trying to get to the teacher's lounge, after which he lets the faculty in on his... Secret plan! In honor of Seymour's 20th year as principal, we've decided to hold a surprise tribute Friday night. It's my 20th year, too. The teacher's lounge is for teachers, Willie. After that burst of... I guess we can call it Scotchism. The students of Springfield Elementary soon learn of the party. And for the tribute, I need a volunteer to present an oral report on Principal Skinner's life. Miss Hoover, which one is oral? Out of your mouth, Ralph. Ralph and I could do the report together. It's your funeral. And after that burst of our American educational system in action, it is our favorite non-prehistoric animated family's turn to set things up for old Skinny Boy. Our class is making refreshments for Skinner's party. These are in honor of his army days. And that explains the flags. What about the dog food? My theory is Skinner likes dog food. Mm, Let's bake him a cake. Ooh, a fresh batch of America balls. Um, To each his own, but I'd like to think Homer ate the dog food balls because he once saw the panel do the same thing on To Tell the Truth back in the day. Not only is the meat in my stroganoff healthy and delicious, but also very reasonable in price. Get out of here, what is it? Why? Because it's dog food. But I digress. The night of the surprise party comes. But Skinner, being a creature of mundane habits, has other plans on his mind. Seven o'clock Friday night, Mother. Time for our weekly silhouette. 
No! Cutting out your ugly nose gives me a hand cramp. Oh, but you love Silhouette Night, and then we go through your bird book and make up silly captions. Mother, why are you all dressed up? I'm sick of this house, and I'm sick of you. Tonight, we're going for a drive. Happy anniversary, son. Oh, Mother. You are still the master of deception. I surely am. Oh, you ain't seen nothing yet, Mama. The party continues without a hitch, and Lisa and Ralph give a glowing tribute. So, in 1966, a brave young man named Seymour Skinner enlisted and shipped out to Vietnam, where he rose to become platoon sergeant. Ralph? Principal Skinner is an old man who lives at the school. Lisa? Sergeant Skinner was a hero. He risked capture many times behind enemy lines. Teacher made me go to Principal Skinner's office when I was dirty. And he survived to make it back to Springfield, where he became the fine educator we salute tonight. When I grow up, I want to be a principal or a caterpillar. I love you, Principal Skinner. And now, what would a great school event be without unintentionally off-key choral singing? But before the show faces a lawsuit from the estate of Henry Vars, the guy who wrote the Flipper theme, a mysterious figure with a familiar voice drives past the school. Tribute to Seymour Skinner. Pull over, driver. Skinner. Shit. And it's at this point in the episode where everything that seemed logical about the series up to that point in time was about to be uprooted. I have never been happier or prouder to be Seymour Skinner. You're not Seymour Skinner. Skinner! Skinner? I'm Skinner. Seymour? I... Mother! She's my mother! Will someone remove that crazy man, please? No, no, he's... He's not crazy. It's true, I'm... I'm an imposter. Watch this, Lise. You can actually pinpoint the second when his heart rips in half. That man is the real Seymour Skinner. And just like that, the Simpsons were never the same. Oh, sure, they're still on the air to this very day. But to many fans and foes of the show alike, that moment where the artist formerly known as Seymour Skinner announced that he was a fake was seen by many of them as a point of no return. That everything that the show was building up towards over the past eight years started to cave in on itself. Or maybe it was just a knee-jerk reaction. After all, the now-fake Skinner just admitted to a lifetime of falsehood, but maybe the how and the why wound up justifying itself, which is what we try to understand in Act 2. Sergeant Seymour Skinner, U.S. Army. It's true. I was in his platoon. But they said you were killed on that scouting mission. No, just captured. It's kind of a funny story, really. After five years in a secret POW camp, I was sold to China for slave labor. And since 77, I've been making sneakers at gunpoint in a sweatshop in Wuhan. That's not a funny story. Well, I guess you had to be there. 
I could make a joke about Wuhan in this day and age, but I won't. So go on. So what's your story, Seymour? If that is your real name. Well, obviously it isn't. My real name is Armin Tamzarian. (gasps) (laughs) Okay, Bill, million dollar question time. With a name that uncommon, surely its origins are just as much. In short, where did the name Armin Tamzarian come from? This is a funny... Okay, if Armin Tamzarian is now a judge... This is the weirdest thing. Okay, <laughs> Ken, if you Google Armin Tamzarian, he's a judge in the Los Angeles Superior Court and has been for like 20 years. It was just like, so I hope he doesn't hear this. Um, I mean, he's used to, I'm sure he's gotten this before. I'm sure he probably gets it once a year. Somebody's like, wait, you're Judge Armin Tamzarian? Like, people, someone who's seen the Simpsons, it's a very distinctive name. And someone who's seen this episode of The Simpsons must encounter him every year and be baffled by the fact that that's his name. It's funny that you say that the real Armin Tamzarian became a judge, because it actually makes this next joke kind of ironically coincidental. I'm an orphan from Capital City, and those who recall my fight to outlaw teenage rudeness may be shocked to learn that I myself was once a street punk. Oh yeah, the way I was headed, it was just a matter of time before I wound up front of a judge. Or was it the judge that wound up in front of himself? Or is the fact that the guy he's named after became a judge only for the character to have a hit and run with a judge and... Get on with it! Sorry, sorry, sorry. Just just one of those things. Uh, Please, continue, Bill. Ken got the name because he was an insurance... I think Ken had a car accident or somebody ran into him, and the insurance adjuster was Armin Tamzarian. I guess he was an insurance adjuster before he went on the career path of becoming a judge. And I think Ken just thought it was a very distinctive name. And and for some reason, Fox did not... There must be at least five Armin Tamzarians somewhere in America because the lawyers always check the names. There had to be either zero or more than five. So I assume somewhere in America, there's at least five or more real Armin Tamzarians because the legal department let the name go right through. That's right. why, and that's where it came from. Yeah, you said yourself, I mean, every once in a while, he'll, the, the real guy will probably, uh, you know, say, okay, I get it, blah, 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 blah. And like, when when the show first aired, I mean, he had to either have been terrified or pissed or relieved or happy or so. I don't know what the reaction was, but, uh, like, when the first, when the show first aired, like, what was I his have a dim recollection, dim recollection that, it call, that he called. I have a dim recollection that during the time that the show aired, or whether, or possibly when it aired the second time, because they always aired the shows twice, right? That I think he called, and I believe that we just said, "Give this message to Ken, and have Ken return his call." And I think Ken did it. I don't think we ever were told what what came of it, but I think Ken probably had a nice conversation with him. I can only assume, knowing Ken, that he said he that he enjoyed the. He, he didn't have any complaints. What I, I guess my point being, I think he had a good experience having his car claim dealt with by Armin Tamzarian. <laughs> so it wasn't like some sort of revenge thing. So after Armin Tamzarian hits his future occupation, the punishment for hitting a judge went thusly. They gave me a choice. Jail, the army, or apologizing to the judge and the old lady. You know, of course, if I'd known there was a war going on, I probably would have apologized. Before you can say Apocalypse Now, Fake Skinner and Real Skinner are fighting side by side. Though Fake Skinner seems to have more of a whatever attitude towards the situation that he's in, Real Skinner has goals in mind that are more down to earth. Everybody's got dreams. I come from a town called Springfield. 
And my dream is to go back and become principal of the elementary school. Some people might call that a pretty corny dream, Sergeant. Well, there's nothing corny about fresh-faced youngsters skipping to school, scraping knees and spelling bees and pies cooling softly on the windowsill. (laughs) Well, sir, if that's corny... Then corn me up. But before any corning can be done, the real Skinner supposedly sacrifices himself to save his platoon, and fake Skinner's life all of a sudden has no direction once again. An issue that is dealt in the most sensitive of ways. Come on, get to the part where you steal his identity. (laughs) I'm trying to explain how emotionally fragile I was. Oh, it's one of those stories. Long story short, fake Skinner becomes... The real Skinner. Yes, Mother, it's me. You look different somehow. But you must be Seymour. Yes, you are Seymour. As strange as it sounds, deep down I think she knew I wasn't her son, but a lie made us both happier than the truth ever could have. A sentiment that I'm sure will remain true until the end of... A dagger! A dagger through my heart! Or maybe not. Oh, here, Mother, let me help you. Get your hands off me! Please, Mom. You too, stranger! I'm your son. I have no son. Look, lady, you obviously have at least one son. No! I have one stranger and one fraud. So now comes the matter of proceeding with things as though they were completely normal. Or at least as normal as things can get in Springfield. My name may have changed, but I'm still the same man I was last week. Not to us, you're not. I mean, how would you feel if you suddenly found out Ned Flanders was an imposter? Who's Ned Flanders? My next-door neighbor, religious guy? Oh, you mean Reverend Lovejoy. No, I don't. All of whom were played by the great Harry Shearer, who I understand Bill had some reservations about doing this episode. The first person to express a negative sentiment about it was Harry Shearer, Hmm. who is the actor, as you all probably know, that does the voice of Principal Skinner. And he was like, he didn't like, he did not like this story. But he also, he was not shy about expressing other stories he didn't like. Like, he didn't like, he really really didn't like that George Bush episode we did, and we thought it was one of our best episodes. And oh, it continues to be pretty well loved. So we were like, well, his opinion, he, he, I think he, when people put tenure, people put seven years into this, appreciating this character and you're squandering all that. And we were like, well, maybe, but it doesn't seem that way. Um, and uh, maybe he was right. But in any case, he recorded the lines as a consummate professional that he was. He recorded the lines um, in the same way that he did the George Bush lines, which was excellently. <laughs> and and then he, he never mentioned it again. So we um, that was the first we heard of it. And I don't think we actually ever heard anybody's reaction to it either, because, again, we operated in more of a vacuum in those days because there was no Twitter. Um, of course. There was all TV Simpsons on Usenet, but they hated every episode. So no matter how great it was. Eventually, fake Skinner realizes that he can't continue living the life that he already was, and instead decides to pick things up from when he was a tough guy in Capital City, a.k.a. the Windy Apple. Principal Skinner? Up yours, children! Act 3 sees fake Skinner leading his new life, and while the more things change, the more they stay the same. Such as fake Skinner having the enthusiasm of an ice cube on some things. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Capital City's nakedest ladies. They're not even wearing a smile. Nod suggestively. Yes, six, count them. Six gorgeous ladies just dying. 
for your leers and catcalls. Yowza, yowza. Meanwhile, in Springfield, the more things change, the more some things tend to change a little too much. Like the rapport between real Skinner and his mother. Seymour, it's 7.30. Where were you? A bar, Mom. I don't know what that is, but on Fridays, you come straight home after school. Tonight is still a wet night. Sit there. I really just came home to change into a turtleneck. Seymour! Sit! In the morning. Oh, Mom, I'm borrowing your car. Well, this won't do. I mean, it's one thing to steal a person's identity, and it's another when the person whose identity you stole comes back to reclaim it. But borrowing your mother's car on silhouette night? Blasphemy! Somehow, that's the last straw, and all the motivation needed to get fake Skinner back where he belongs. Okay, once more, where are we going? The capital city. And why are you and the old lady in the car? We're going to talk Armin Tamzarian into coming back. And why is Marge here? I came up with the idea. And why am I here? Because the streets of Capital City are no place for three unescorted ladies. And why are the kids here? Because we couldn't find Grandpa to sit for them. And why is Grandpa here? Because Jasper didn't want to come by himself. And the one thing that I will give this episode all the credit in the world for, in spite of a plot that can, I guess, give you expositional whiplash, at least the jokes in this show are still funny. And that being said, Bill, in spite of the negative reputation that this show got, were there any jokes in this episode that stuck out the most to you? What makes me laugh is is Homer saying, may I see your copy of Swank, Armin, and sitting there reading Swank right in front of his little kids (laughs) and smiling (laughs) as he looks at it. My mind is made up. I'm not coming back. And that's final. Oh, Seymour. And I'm not Seymour. My name is Armin. This is Armin's apartment, Armin's liquor, Armin's copy of Swank, Armin's frozen peas. Can I see your copy of Swank, Armin? Yes, you can. My favorite joke, and this I don't even know if this counts as a joke or not, but just for some reason, in the third act, when uh, everybody's at Skinner's uh, flop house, uh, you know, trying to convince him to come home, and he's going on this whole rant like, this is Armin's place. This is Armin's copy of Swank. This is Armin's frozen peas. <laughs> I don't know yeah. why, but that always makes me laugh the hardest. But, like, is, was there anything else in that episode that just really stuck out the most in terms of humor content? I love that stuff. I love there's that stuff at the beginning. There's a lot of lines which I consider are, have made it that are still like, I like my cough, my beverine with creamy and people still gray with creamy and people still like that. <laughs> oh, Superintendent Chalmers, can I offer you a cup of coffee flavored beverine? Yeah, I take it gray with creamium. There's a couple other jokes in there that are very enjoyable, um, and but my favorite by far is the end. Now I'd also say there's a line if you look at some of the interviews Ken has done about this topic. There was a line that we cut out for time that I think Ken found that might have taken the sting off it to some extent, where it was it talks about how there's a you know, Springfield is a community of people who like things the way they are, mm. and and they don't like change, and. and it's some it's some sort of self-reflexive thing about the viewers being that way as well. I think the thing that would have taken the sting off it is some silly thing at the end where Homer comes out on stage and says, that for everybody who objects to this, it was all a dream. You know, or some crap like that. Right. That's some half-assed way of buying it off so people don't be like, people wouldn't be like it's some sort of turning point. <laughs> that it was, a, it was all a dream. This is Armin's life, and maybe it's not perfect, but at least I'm back where I belong. I was born a no-good, Nick. 
and I'll die in no good, Nick. Seymour, I didn't bring you up to use language like that. Well, you didn't bring me up at all. The hell I didn't. I've been taking care of you for 26 years. I'm the only mother you've ever known. But you have your real son. You're my real son. You've been my son longer than he has, and he doesn't need me, and I don't need him. Now you march yourself downstairs and get in that car. Yes, mother. And the rest of you, too. Yes, Mrs. Skinner. So after that pep talk, fake Skinner comes home. But what to do about our real Skinner? Too crazy for boys' town. Too much of a boy for crazy town. The answer to that question is obvious. You all seem to be forgetting that I am Seymour Skinner. This is where I belong. You can't ask me to disappear just because you like some other guy better. I gave half my life for you people. Aren't I entitled to a little dignity? You're, uh, you're right, Sergeant. Well, I don't see any way out of this. Now, if you'll allow me, I think I have a solution that'll satisfy the town and let Sergeant Skinner keep his dignity. But I'm a hero! And we salute you for it. Now, don't come back. And he never did. At least that we know of. I mean, Martin Sheen is still alive as of press time, and The Simpsons looks like it's never going to end, so... Never say never. I love the ending. I love the fact that that he's tied that he's tied to a railroad flat car, and and tied up with ropes, and the train slowly drives off. It's like an old Frank Capra type thing, you know, like a musical from the '40s or whatever too. Um, and that 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 the fact that people don't respect, they don't care that he's a war hero because they don't like him. That's part of the thing, and I think that's very much the story of Frank Grimes as well. Is that Frank Grimes is a very deserving man. But he's just prickly, and people don't like that. In spite of the episode's ending, where everything essentially goes back to the status quo, there have been other instances where the status quo gets altered significantly. Once again, with seemingly very little complaints from the fans. And I'm talking things like either new characters, or character deaths, thanks to the voice actors passing away, or other continuity-related items. So, on that end... Do you feel that this episode of the show opened the door for these changes to take place? Or are these more isolated incidences slash coincidences that people seem to be more accepting of change? I think that a lot of stuff had already been fundamentally changed, probably beginning with the monorail episode or maybe even with the baseball episode, where it's clear that the fabric of this universe can be expanded. And the only question is whether it can come back. And I think that people, and this is one of the, Matt Groening, by the way, I think has gone on record that he hates this episode too, because this was expanded beyond the point that it could necessarily come back. Because everyone will always remember in their head that Principal Skinner is really Armand Temzerian. But I would say the past 25 years have borne out that that's not correct. Principal Skinner has been in hundreds of stories since then, and I don't think the stories have been really damaged by people having the knowledge in their head that he's really Armand Temzerian. So I believe that things not as substantial as rewriting Principal Skinner's um, backstory had occurred. But nothing substantial, uh, substantial that had occurred to that point, but things that were beyond the realm of the show had occurred. And the thing about it is, it's not so much... This is the thing I think you have to, that it is, is hard to want to 
watching this again occurred to me. This actually, the Skinner, the story of the Principal Popper is actually a realistic story. It's not some crazy story that involves fantastical elements or the supernatural or something that is preposterous because this has really happened. Right. This has happened multiple times in the past 500 years and many times. And so, and other than that, the episode is extremely realistic. You know, there's no crazy stuff. There's no talking to to Osmodiar. There's no other stuff <laughs> of that nature. And like, it's, it's the fact that people don't like that many people, including Harry Shearer and Matt Groening, don't like the retconning of his of, of Principal Skinner, which I completely understand. Um, I think it's possible that as a viewer who wasn't in, involved in making the story, I might have felt the same way, but I would also have recognized it as an homage to that, that old story. And there is, of course, one final loose end yet to be tied up. Well, this is a lovely gesture, but we still have to face the fact that I'm not really Seymour Skinner. Oh, uh, no, we don't. Judge Snyder. By authority of the city of Springfield, I hereby confer upon you the name of Seymour Skinner, as well as his past, present, future, and mother. And I further decree that everything will be just like it was before all this happened, and no one will ever mention it again. Under penalty of torture. Which I guess means that said penalty of torture is exempt if you're an eight-year-old girl. Isn't that right, clip from season 15? You're Snowball 5. But to save money on a new dish, we'll just call you Snowball 2 and pretend this whole thing never happened. That's really a cheat, isn't it? I guess you're right, Principal Tamzarian. I'll just be moving along, Lisa. Snowball too. And that's pretty much the principal and the pauper episode of The Simpsons. An episode of television that may have caused more polarization in a fan base than most other TV shows. And considering this aired during a time when the internet wasn't as full of instant gratification as it does now, one has to wonder. The backlash, or I guess overall audience reaction to this episode was, and probably still remains, one of the most vocal ones in the history of the show. What would you say, Bill, is the balance between justifiable criticism and blatant patent overreacting? I think there's an interesting thing to be said here with regards to this and other episodes in season eight. I believe that this, I wouldn't say this is the funniest episode, but I would say it's far from the least funny episode. I think it's a great script by Ken. It's very fun. I would say it's it's not it's not as hilarious as, for instance, the Prohibition episode. However, it is as hilarious as the average episode, I would say, from season seven and eight in terms of its thing. But it also has a very dramatic, involving story. And this is the thing that I felt when I was watching it just again right now, was like, this is a good story. It's very moving. You know, it's very moving the way that the relationships between, between Agnes and Principal Skinner, you know, that they agree to live this lie. I found that I found the story to be very emotionally moving. And I think, honestly, the, the, the signpost that causes people to react very negatively is they don't like that we're that we rewrote the history of Principal Skinner. And they don't like, especially given people who, people who may have never even heard or seen of this story, the existing story of Martin Gare or Summersby. Um, those pe- people who are familiar with Martin Gere or Summersby are just like, oh, they're doing a parody of that. And they didn't like, they didn't have this negative reaction to this retcon type thing right. as opposed to people who have never, this is the first time you've been exposed to that story. You're like, what the fuck is going on? These guys have lost their minds. Who are writing this? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, I would say probably a good percentage of people, 80% of the people who hate this episode or consider it to be a, a signpost of the show's decline are people who probably weren't familiar with the story and found it to be 
people thought that we were being incompetent rather than making it an homage to Martin Gare. It, in fact, a very well-executed, if I may say it mainly by Ken, homage to Martin Gare and not just a sign of desperate weirdos trying, flailing to create a story in it and failing. You know, it's like it's I think it's a well-constructed version of that story and is very moving. Now, it is definitely something that is not for everybody. It wasn't for Harry Shearer. A lot of people don't like it. Uh, And I I think, you know, people, uh, everyone's opinion is valid with regards to The Simpsons. The only thing you can do is kind of take a poll, you know, and a lot of people, I think, would say this is the worst episode, at least of that era. But if they subtracted, if it said you can't judge it based on the principal Skinner's identity being changed, then I think they probably wouldn't react so negatively. That's a good point, and it's also a fair point. But a bigger question to ask ourselves, however... Does the backlash of the episode hold up, or were people too quick to react to it all? That's a question that both of us hope to answer in the Nine Circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, treachery. On its own merits, and yes, there are plenty of merits to be found in this show, the episode still had some good moments and good jokes. Unfortunately, both of which stem from the fact that they pretty much turn a notable character into, let's face it, a consummate fraud. And the fact that the character was apparently able to get away with it for almost three decades shows that, intentional, accidental, or otherwise, fake Skinner was pretty much getting away with treachery. Which, if this were any earlier season of the show, I think fans would have objected less towards. If the Armin Tanzarian story was done in, say, season one or season two of the show, there's no doubt that the backlash would either not be as high or practically non-existent. Given the fact that this took place deep into the show's golden years with a well-known character, and then reverting to the status quo changed a lot of people's perceptions on the show. Largely for the worse, and especially in the case of primitive online feedback, a lot of wrathful viewers. And because the status quo was altered this one time, many Simpsons fans look back on this moment as a black mark of heresy towards everything the show was building itself up towards in its first eight seasons. But like I said, if this were done in any of the other earlier seasons... Before the show truly connected with the audience, and this was just an ordinary bottle episode, the episode would have been better received. Which brings me to this question, Bill, and given your experience in television over the years, is it possible for one episode, just one episode, of a given TV series truly break a series reputation, or would it take multiple shows to do that? And by the way, don't just limit yourself to your time on The Simpsons. I just mean more for, like, TV in general. Is that possible? That's a great question, and I think it's a diff- I mean, I, there's multiple answers to that, which I think is are also determined by the medium. Like, are you talking... Like, it, it was obviously different in broadcast television. In the days of broadcast television, where there were three or four networks, and the ratings that came in that night were what, what you live or die by those. Right. As opposed to a streaming service. Mm-hmm. Like a streaming service that like people just don't complete the episodes. In the case of Jumping the Shark or whatever with Fonzie, right. I don't think that really killed the show. It, the show was already running on fumes probably at that point anyway and that's the episode was very popular at the time. It Only in retrospect do people choose that as a turning point in the history of Happy Days. So I don't believe 
Also, in the era of broadcast television, it was a well-known thing that even people who claim to love a show would only see one out of every three episodes. So I don't believe that a that one single episode could, no matter how shitty the episode was. I mean, even great that great TV series like Bob Newhart right. and things of that back in the day had had a couple of crappy episodes. And it's not in general, unless the whole thing is on a rapid downhill traje- trajectory already. Right. It's very hard. I don't think one show, one episode, no matter how lousy, can kill a thing because simply because people not not everybody's going to see those episodes. The Simpsons' Principal and the Pauper episode earns four out of nine circles of telehell. But I want to be absolutely clear here. Even though this show wound up with the reputation it wound up with, I personally do not consider the show bad television. An anomaly, maybe, but nothing that would cause the Earth to shatter. The fans of The Simpsons are more than welcome to feel however they want to feel about it. But at the peak of the fervor that it received, maybe people got a little carried away with their reactions. And on that note, Bill, I have one final question to ask you. Given the opportunity to do so with the same people, and especially knowing what you know now, would you make this episode of television again? And if so, are there any things that you would do with the episode differently? Yes, I would have done the whole episode exactly the same, except I would at the very end, I would add a 10 or 15 second tag where someone comes out to buy it off in a, in a crappy, in a jokily crappy way. Like Homer says this, hope you all enjoy this episode of Springfield Fantasy Theater. This didn't really happen for anybody who didn't like it. It didn't really happen. It was all a dream. Thanks. The end, you know, something like that. And it still would have made people mad, but at least people you would have like for some reason, people consider this episode canonical like this as opposed to other episodes like this one really happened. Like Principal Skinner really is Alvin Temzarian, but how many other times have there been uh, probably a thousand over the course of the series or something that essentially tampered with the underpinnings of the series? This is a much longer, admittedly, a much longer, more in-depth undermining of the character's backstory. But characters' backstories are undermined all the time in short, small ways. One of the reasons Josh and I wanted to leave the show at the end of season eight was we had a number of reasons because, first of all, it was traditional at that point to run the show for two years and then leave. Uh, uh, secondly, we wanted to go create our own show. But third of all, we also felt the show was not going to be on for much longer. And then you know how the wrong that is. We, we left at the end of season eight. What's well, like season 35 now? That was the wrongest thing of all time. But let me say back then, how many sitcoms went for 10 seasons? Cheers went for 10 seasons. Right. Seinfeld, uh-huh. MASH. And that was it. So we were like, this show doesn't have much more gas in it. We're running out of stories. And we were like, let's just leave while the getting is good before we run out of stories. We want to be the guys to usher this thing into the grave. So, and, and I felt that we were already running out of stories by the end of season eight. Now, that said, I don't think Principal and the Popper is one of the stories that I were, that we were running out of. I would have done this, that story in season seven. We would have put this, proudly put this in season seven or, you know, early on right you know with with the 300 pound homer episode or right. whatever like it was we did not consider this to be one where we were stretching the you know the bounds we were stretching to come up with a good story that sounds good to me thank you bill and more importantly thank you for coming on the show today and by the way i also hope that the writers guild get exactly what they're looking for hashtag wga strong i did have uh, one other question to ask you before you go uh, and this one just kind of drove me a little nuts You've been responsible for countless pieces of comedy over the years. What made you want to get into reviewing snack food and strange snacks? In other words, 
It's now your turn to tell us about the Steamed Ham Society. It's always something I've been very interested in. And this is like, I always, you know, back even in the high school days, I was like, hey, McDonald's has a new burger. McDonald's has these new things called chicken McNuggets. I want to go try them. I got to go try them and I want to tell everybody about them if I like them. So I've always been like that. And my audience has just grown over the years for that kind of thing. I used to kind of do it on Twitter. And then exactly almost five years ago, McDonald's came out with their fresh beef quarter pounders, which was the first time they hadn't used frozen beef, right? So I went to review those and I was like, eh, this is not going to be as good if, if I have to type it. Maybe I should just make a video. I made the video, put it on my Instagram and it immediately got, got a lot of attention, like from McDonald's. The official McDonald's account was like, hey, that's awesome. Congratulations on your new career as a food blogger. And I was like, hey, that's cool. And then the head chef of McDonald's also um, commented on it. And we've subsequently between, we subsequently have become friends. And that's like, so I was like, this is fun. And I kept doing it. It's so much more fun than doing TV because you don't have to, like, I can say, I'm going to do, re- I'm going to review this new Taco Bell item. And then three hours later, the video is out there and it didn't have to go through 10 months of development and hundreds of executives you know, nitpicking it to death. It's very fun for me to do. And so over the course of the past five years, I've been taken more and more seriously in this field and to the point where I'm I'm on TV talking about it. I'm on the sh- regularly on the show, The Food That Built America, on the History Channel talking about food. Mm-hmm. And I get to write articles and I get to appear on various other things just as a food expert. And and I love it. And hopefully I'm going to, hopefully sometime soon I'm going to have my own show like Phil Rosenthal. Collaterally to that, I have started this thing called the Steamed Ham Society. Now everybody listening to this probably knows what Steamed Hams is, but what it is it's a euphemism for hamburgers uh and so if you are interested in joining up it's the steamed just go to steamedhamsociety.com there are multiple levels that you can join at there's multiple rewards and it's it's really a club for people who like food and want to talk about hey did you try this new chicken sandwich hey did you see this recipe for smoking your barbecue and it's not just low-end food either i mean it's food so we have some real gourmets on there too and it's like but it's food of every type from the new flavor of cheetos to how do you you know best cook beef wellington at home and that type of thing and that we have live stream we have newsletter, we have merchandise, and it's really fun. And um, that is about a quarter of my time and effort income these days is doing stuff for the Steamed Ham Society. There's also special levels for Simpsons fans where we have events. You know, we've had a lot of prominent Simpsons people on special Steamed Ham Society live streams, um, and there's special merchandise. And there's even a level for people who want me to read their scripts because I now charge to do that because it used to take so much time. Um, but if you want, if you're a writer and you like want me to give you intense well thought out feedback um, you can sign up the Steam Hill Society level it's quite expensive but I've gotten a fair number of people to do it because um, it allows me to concentrate on their script rather than you know having to cram it in on my weekend or whatever anything else you'd like to plug while we have you here I wrote an audiobook, which is my it's, I, you know the thing is it's kind of an audiobook. it's kind of a podcast and it falls in between those cracks but it's a it's like a radio show is what it is right it's 10 episodes about 30 or 40 minutes long a piece of a story called Space 1960 which is the thing I've most wanted to write in my entire life. Audible, if you if it's an audio book, I think you'll enjoy it. It's on audible.com. It stars Natasha Leone. It takes place in a universe where John F. Kennedy did not die from being shot, but in fact just became a little a little crazy and decided to expand the U.S. into space as quickly as possible. So when the series begins, it's his third inauguration day and America has a space station and is planning a colony on the moon. Uh, Natasha Leone is a nurse on the space station who gets drawn into this elaborate conspiracy. And for anybody like 
keep in mind, I was only three years old at the time that this occurred, but I have a fascination with that era and the pop culture of that era and so forth. And there's a lot of things, you know, from Muhammad Ali to the Beverly Hillbillies to how, you know, all that kind of thing that, that it deals with. And it's um, people have really enjoyed it. And I'd say it's the most successful thing I've ever done that was not created by Matt Groening. And I am I believe that we are almost finished with the negotiations and the contract for me to write the sequel to that, um, which I'm very excited about. Bill Oakley, it was an absolute thrill to have an honest-to-Satan Simpsons alumni here on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks a bunch. And uh, I hope you enjoy those snacks that we sent you. Okay, great. Okay, take care, Bill. Wow. I I honestly don't know how we're going to be able to top this. But damn it, we'll try. Next time on Telehell, what better way to mark our season five finale than by looking at a finale? Or to put it another way. Thanks for letting me take part in another hugely disappointing series finale. Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. I'm probably going to run out of breath in my actual lifetime before I can repeatedly thank former Simpsons writer and executive producer Bill Oakley for being my guest today. As we've been saying throughout the episode, you can follow all the food reviews that he does at steamedhamsociety.com. Or, if you prefer, feel free to follow Bill on various social media platforms at thatbilloakley. This interview, by the way, was only the tip of the iceberg. Keep an ear out later this summer to hear the entire interview in a piece that we're calling Bill Oakley, Uncut, Unsteamed, Unhammed. Check that out later this summer. And finally, very special thanks to Ian Fermaglitch for helping us connect with Bill Oakley. Listen to Ian Talks Comedy wherever you stream podcasts. And now, here are the rest of the credits. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. The show may be over, but you know where to find us. On social media, Twitter and Facebook, at Telehell Podcast. Want to hear some premium content? Go to patreon.com slash Podcast. And if you have any questions or comments about this show, feel free to contact us at our complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com. But even more than that, please be sure to like, comment, rate, subscribe, lie to us all over the places where Telehell is streaming, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many others, just by Googling Telehell. No, Mother, it's just the Northern Lights.